Hello, and welcome to Past, the podcast about those who would never rule. I'm Veronica Fortune, and this week's episode is Richard, Third Duke of York, Part 4. Welcome back. Just a quick recap of where we are since last week was a huge episode. Richard and his Yorkist supporters have defeated the Royalist forces at the First Battle of St. Albans. Edmund Beaufort, the second Duke of Somerset, Henry VI's right-hand man, and the whispers from behind the throne, was killed. Richard has taken the king back to London, had him crowned to restore regal royal prestige. But there's a lot to do. This battle was destabilizing, at least momentarily, and Richard needs to start to sort things out. With that, let's get going. The battle's aftermath within England wasn't the only problem occurring. James II of Scotland invaded England and lay siege to Berwick after receiving word of the infighting in England. His casus belli was the death of his uncle, Beaufort. Remember, James II's mother was Joan Beaufort. To emphasize, this Joan Beaufort was Edmund's sister, not Richard's mother-in-law. It's a very popular name within the Beaufort family. The English, with Richard commanding from London, were able to end this tiny disagreement quickly. Richard had a lot to do. Other than appointing his nephew, Warwick, as the captain of Calais, he soon appointed himself the Constable of England. He also had Henry Boucher, the younger brother of the Archbishop of Canterbury, appointed Lord Treasurer. Parliament was called at the end of May to meet on the 9th of July, 1455. At this meeting, Henry opened the session as king. Richard's supporters were pardoned. The Archbishop of Canterbury raised issues keeping Calais funded and safe to protect merchant vessels and wanted to make sure reforms in the royal household continued. He also wanted to see that issues with Scotland were addressed, financial transfers between England and Bordeaux were supervised, and Wales be discussed. Richard, as he had the first time he was protector, immediately began dealing with these issues. He appointed committees to look into each problem, and these committees were made up of a mix of members who had knowledge of each of these issues, plus supporters of the Royalist cause and the Yorkist cause. The Commons also presented a petition to rehabilitate Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester. This was passed and ratified. The king was well throughout this period, but under Richard's control. However, there were signs that he may be becoming unwell again. Parliament was paused, I can't find a precise date, but it was resumed on the 12th of November. By then, the king was unable to attend due to illness. Richard was again appointed Lord Protector on the 18th of November. Richard made sure, as on his earlier acts, that Edward, the Prince of Wales, was provided with income via the Duchy of Cornwall. The Prince of Wales would be offered the protectorate once he came of age, just like the previous terms of Richard's control. Richard himself would be paid at the same level he had been during the earlier protectorate, if he got paid at all. After reviewing the committee's work, Richard began to reform, much like he had done during his first protectorate. Sadly, for all involved, this protectorate would be shorter. By that, I mean, I think the long-term outcome would have been better for all had Richard been allowed to remain in charge. Maybe not France, but we're talking about England right now. Henry recovered in February of 1456 and dismissed Richard on the 25th. The Paston letters, though, suggest that Queen Margaret may have been pulling the strings and that the king was still unwell, though not catatonic. Instead, he was full of energy. 
I am by no means a mental health specialist, but from what I understand, the likely illness that Henry suffered from had multiple presentations, catatonia being just one. The others can present similarly to a mania. Think back to his grandfather killing members of his household after being startled by a spear falling on a helmet. With this recovery, Henry decided to go on a royal progress. He showed an interest in his kingdom in a way he hadn't before. While Richard had been removed from the protectorship, he was still close to the king. This was lucky because on the 10th of May, James II decided to try his hand again, this time in writing. A month later, James received a letter, written in the king's name but sent from Richard, accusing James II of treason because Henry was his liege lord. This would have been a bit of a slap in the face. It was not likely written to remind James of disputed truths, but to inflame him and to make it clear that England wasn't afraid of him. Richard wrote a second time, again making fun of James, before Henry took over, sending his own letter to James II that he did not approve of Richard's wording in the earlier letters. Henry also slipped in a statement that Richard had been troubling his kingdom since Cade's rebellion. This is an odd statement to add, since, as we've seen, Richard really hadn't. Instead, he was associated with the rebels because both wanted to reform England. But if you look at Richard's overall actions, his professions of loyalty, and his protection of the king when needed, he's not so much troubling the kingdom as working to make it better. Matthew Lewis suggests this last bit may have been written by Queen Margaret, since she had set herself against Richard. He points out that Henry's letter could have been perceived as almost an invitation to invade, since it was letting the King of Scots know that England had a rebellious duke at the heart of power, who had been acting as such for five years. This was a bad letter to send if you wanted to invoke confidence. And this brings us to a bit more about Queen Margaret. She had set herself against Richard by allying herself with Beaufort. Now, Edmund Beaufort has been suggested as the illegitimate father of both Catherine of Valois' younger sons, the king's half-brothers, Edmund and Jasper Tudor, and Edward, the Prince of Wales, by gossip mongers of the day. While I'm truly not suggesting this is true, I suggest this says something about Beaufort that he's good at building relationships with powerful women. This is a brilliant skill to have, and it had helped men throughout history achieve a great deal by hanging on the coattails of women who can help them in power. Beaufort seems to have been able to win the queen's trust, but he was gone now, and Margaret didn't have any supporters other than her husband. She had done the one thing queens sadly needed to do, provided him with a son. But with the loss of her political ally, she was likely feeling lost at court. Thus far, Richard had done nothing against her personally. He had made sure her household was maintained, though not at the level she wanted, but financial awareness does not seem to be her strong point. Nor Henry's. He had elevated her son to the titles he was due, and he had kept her near her husband each time Henry was unable to run the country. But... She had been trying to form an alliance with Scotland to protect her position. Anyone who knows, well, anything about Anglo-Scottish history knows this is probably a bad idea. But Margaret hadn't learned this truth. She thought she could persuade a Scottish army to support her, and that the English would support this. 
Her decision, though, would lead others away from her cause and into the arms of Richard. Sometime in early October 1456, a plan was hatched to kill Richard, but it was stopped by his brother-in-law, the Duke of Buckingham. There were rumours recorded in the Paston letters that the Queen had something to do with this. Not long after this failed attempt, two more neutral members of the council, Henry and Thomas Boucher, were removed from their appointed posts. Thomas did remain the archbishop, though. Removing those people usually requires death. How are these two events linked? Well, the Boucher brothers happen to also be Buckingham's younger half-brothers through their mother, Anne of Gloucester. Buckingham wouldn't stop supporting the king after this, but it may have pushed him away from Margaret. Something else had also happened after the death of Beaufort that I should mention quickly. His niece got married. Sadly, this will be a rather disturbing story to share. This marriage will be fully covered when she gets her own episode, but it was kind of a big deal. Lady Margaret Beaufort, then only 12, was married to the older of the king's younger half-brothers, Edmund, who was 25. Now, I've discussed this in earlier episodes, but marriages with this young of a bride and this big of an age gap were normal and expected. What wasn't expected was for these marriages to be consummated immediately. However, a man would not have ongoing access to his wife's wealth if they didn't have children. Since Lady Margaret was a wealthy heiress and Edmund was not as heavy of purse, he made the shocking decision to consummate their marriage while his wife was still a literal child. His hope was that they would have a child who would secure his hold over her holdings. He was half right in this belief. They did have a child, but he would never secure a hold over her property. He would die in early November 1456 while in Wales. He had been sent there by his brother to quell the unrest stirred up by Griffith Ap Nicholas. His son, Henry Tudor, I wonder what he'll amount to, was born on the 28th of January 1457 to a 13-year-old Lady Margaret Beaufort. This also lets you know that one of the king's closest supporters, who oddly didn't have trouble working with Richard, is also dead. The year Henry Tudor was born was a quiet year compared to the previous years. This is one I imagine old English chroniclers would have written an entry or two on celestial events, and maybe the birth of Tudor would have made it into the books, but probably not. King Henry did compensate Richard for a few minor Welsh castles that he wanted to transfer from Richard to his surviving brother, Jasper. Richard handed them over without protest. Oddly, Jasper, Edmund, and Richard seemed to get along really well. In March of the following year, 1458 though, things started to get interesting. Henry issued Richard with letters of safe conduct to attend a great council that had been summoned to meet in London. Richard's brother-in-law, Salisbury, and his nephew Warwick were also invited. York arrived with 400 men, Salisbury with 500, and Warwick, who maintained his post in Calais, with 600. The new Duke of Somerset, Henry, and the Duke of Exeter, Richard's son-in-law, arrived with 800 men, and the Percy brothers brought 1,500 men. This sounds less like a meeting to govern the country and more like a powder keg to me. An English chronicle, that's its name, not just a general chronicle, said that Richard and his supporters' men were peaceful, but those from the opposition were not. 
Henry and Queen Margaret arrived on the 17th of March. At some point after this, Richard and Salisbury avoided an ambush from the Percys and their supporters. Remember, Richard was under safe conduct, and these were vocal and open supporters of the royal couple. By the 24th of March, after long negotiations, the two parties reached an agreement. Richard was required to pay Beaufort's widow and children for the loss of her husband and their father. Warwick was required to pay a similar compensation to a minor noble who suffered at the First Battle of St. Albans. Salisbury was required to cancel debts owed to him by the Percys. The younger of the Percys was required to pay a peace bond to maintain peace between himself and the Neville faction for the next 10 years. Richard did think quickly and had his debt applied to the amount the exchequer owed him. Since he hadn't been properly paid for much of the funds he was due for holding office in France, Ireland, or as Lord Protector, it was a great example of literally passing the buck. I'm sure he wished them luck on extracting the funds from the rather broke crown. Don't forget that Richard's great pushes while he was in power were to reform royal finances because there wasn't any money. I also want to remind you that Richard submitted to the king's justice when he was able to hear it from the king directly. He could have easily attacked and made things very difficult for Henry, but since he was able to speak to the king, Richard submitted fully. There, though, is one more painful submission to come. On the 25th of March, 1458, Henry declared Love Day and had his various warring nobles and his wife march through London in a glorious parade. I'm trying not to crack up. Henry likely led the way, with Richard following, holding hands with Queen Margaret, who were in turn followed by Salisbury, holding hands with the new Duke of Somerset, Henry Beaufort. How awkward. It actually makes me feel really bad for everyone involved except Henry. I'm sure he was convinced he had solved everything. I can't find out if people were wearing gloves or not. Henry had solved very little. So little, in fact, that you can't see what he solved. The country was still in financial ruin. He still had two factions who hated each other, who were forced to put on a farce for his benefit. And his wife was beginning to act on her own accord, without him being her reason. The rest of 1458 was uneventful in an active sense, but was busy in the politicking that occurs around court. Rumors began to circulate that Edward, Prince of Wales, was not the king's son. Rumors that were not new, but still would have been painful for the queen. Hearing these, Margaret attempted to bring men to her son's side, having those who joined her cause swear allegiance to her son not Henry as king. Richard was luckily safe in Ludlow, far away from the queen who seemingly wanted him dead. His supporter Warwick was in Calais, winning a great deal of money from his naval victories and building up an impressive following. And Salisbury was in the north, bringing men to his and Richard's cause. In June of 1459, a great council was called. Richard and Neville's supporters were called to attend, but felt too threatened and refused to attend. They were ordered to appear before Parliament in November. At the end of the summer 1459, Richard sent word to the two, along with his oldest sons, Edward and Edmund, to join him at Ludlow with their men. Edward was 17 and probably nearing his full adult height of 6 foot 4 inches 
Well, Edmund was 16, and sadly, we'll never know how tall he would have been as an adult. The buildup from Richard wasn't one-sided. Queen Margaret had spent the last six months building up her forces. She was looking to stop Richard and his forces from meeting up. This caused Salisbury to be a little later than the rest. On the 23rd of September, he faced off against Queen Margaret's supporters at the Battle of Bloor Heath. His 5,000 men were ambushed by 10,000 of Margaret's men and won. The leader of the Queen's men, Baron Audley, was killed and his second-in-command, Baron Dudley, surrendered. Salisbury was able to make it to Ludlow just a few days after the battle. Warwick arrived from Calais with his near-professional fighting force. And after this message, you'll hear more. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Richard and his supporters made plans to march south, but something would put a stop to those quickly. The group then moved from Ludlow to Worcester. In early October, Richard, Salisbury, and Warwick began to march east, planning to head south eventually, but received word that a large host, led by the king, was coming their way. Now, this is an odd event in itself. Henry had been to battles before, but this is the first time he had been the driving force behind one, and leading it with his sword held aloft. This could be a sign that he was suffering from a mental collapse. Remember, peace was an overriding drive throughout his life. He did almost everything he could to avoid war, and here he is, leading his army. Richard and his men retreated to Ludlow. Knowing the king was leading the army would make fighting him treason. They sent a letter to the king stating their loyalty to him and informing him that they were only trying to protect themselves from those who would harm them, i.e. Queen Margaret and her followers. Henry responded that if they surrendered, all but Salisbury would be spared. Remember, he had just faced off against the queen's forces. If you'll remember way back to the first time Henry offered to protect Richard and remove Beaufort when Richard met the king with a large army, Henry did no such thing and it was a huge risk that he'd do the same thing this time. Plus, he was in full armor leading the charge. This might not have been the peaceful Henry they were all used to dealing with. Richard and his men built a defensive barrier outside of the castle and made plans for what they'd do if attacked. On the 12th of October, the royal army reached their location. Sometime after events, it was claimed that Richard announced the king had died and set a mass for his soul. 
Like the rumors that the Prince of Wales was not Henry's son, this is unlikely to be true. But it makes for a good story. Overnight, the soldiers from Calais defected. Once this news reached Richard, he, Salisbury, Warwick, and Richard's sons retreated to Ludlow. Knowing the defecting lieutenant from Calais knew their plans, they likely realized they'd have little chance of victory, or even survival if they stayed to fight the king. Instead, Richard and Edmund slipped out and rode into Wales, with the goal of finding a ship to reach Ireland. Salisbury, Warwick, and Edward rode south to Devon, and were able to find a boat to take them to Calais. On the morning of the 13th of October, the Yorkist army woke to find their leaders gone. The royal forces obtained the submission of the remaining soldiers and then ransacked the town. Richard had been forced to leave behind his wife and younger children, including his two youngest sons. Cecily and her children were taken to the king and put in the care of Cecily's sister, the Duchess of Buckingham. I am not going to go into some of the descriptions of how Cecily was treated. Richard and Edmund reached Ireland. They were welcomed by the Irish lords. Richard's time there really had been successful. The crown sent demands to have Richard returned, and the Irish refused. Richard opened Irish Parliament in early February 1460. He even managed to set up a mint. He could have very well stayed in Ireland, but getting his wife and youngest children there might have been near impossible. Richard and Cecily were rather devoted to each other, so this arrangement would not have been his choice. Alice, Salisbury's wife, had managed to flee to Ireland after her attainment. Meanwhile, in England, things were set against Richard and his supporters. Parliament had been called in early October and met on the 20th of November. This parliament earns the best nickname of any parliament I've heard until the Civil War. It might actually beat those. It's called the Parliament of Devils. So much better than the bad parliament. The Parliament of Devils, as would be expected, focused on punishing Richard and his supporters. An English chronicle even suggests that the elections to this parliament were unjust. Salisbury, his sons Thomas and John, who had been with him at Bloor Heath, along with other supporters, were attained first. Then Richard, Edward, Edmund, Warwick, and further supporters for their actions at Ludlow. Finally, Salisbury's wife Alice was attained, as I mentioned earlier. Now, she wasn't one who would normally be attained, being a woman. But Salisbury was the Earl Jury Ux Oris, which meant with her attained, all his property was no longer his, even if he survived this ordeal. Attainders are an act of Parliament, a way to find someone guilty without a trial. In addition, it would see all these men's families without access to any of their funds should they die. Cecily Neville had an audience with the king and asked for support. She was granted a reasonable payment drawn from her husband's former lands. The rest of the York lands were divided up between Henry's loyal supporters, at least for the moment. Remember back to the last time a king confiscated a great deal of property from a powerful duke? The Lancastrian inheritance that Richard II took from Henry Bolingbroke? By taking this much from Richard and his supporters, Henry and his supporters left the Yorkists with no other option but to fight for their lives and property. In late June 1460, Warwick sailed out of Calais, avoided or outran the English naval forces in the Channel. They were able to rescue Alice, Salisbury's wife, and Warwick's mother. 
Warwick was able to meet with Richard to discuss their long-term plans. Warwick was then able to return to Calais safely while avoiding any fighting with the English Navy. He was pretty impressive with his ship. Warwick was able to maintain control of Calais. In early July, Warwick and Salisbury left Calais for England. They were able to march into London on the 2nd of July. It helped that Salisbury's younger son, George, was the Bishop of Exeter. <laughs> the tower was under control of forces loyal to the king, so Salisbury was left behind to besiege the tower. Warwick and Edward went north to confront the king. On the 10th of July, at Northampton, Warwick, Edward, and their force of at least 2,000 faced the king and his 5,000 strong forces. It was a resounding Yorkist victory. Henry was taken captive. The Duke of Buckingham was killed, along with three other leading royalists. Oh, and a baron switched sides to the Yorkist cause. The queen, though, who had been present, managed to escape with her son. She would flee to Wales and then on to Scotland. Henry was regally and slowly transported to London. With the news that the king was captured, Richard began making plans to return to England. At this point, Richard could have chosen to stay in Ireland. His nephew would have sent his wife and children to him. We could be living in a world that had a Yorkist Ireland monarch and a Lancastrian England monarch with Warwick acting as Lord Protector. Hey, Warwick could have even married one of his daughters to the Prince of Wales. Oh wait, no, I'll get to that later. But it's likely Richard and Warwick had made an agreement during the latter's visit to Ireland, and Richard returned to London on the 10th of October. Parliament had opened on the 7th. I won't speculate through the next bit of this. I'll leave that for my analysis at the end. But anyone who's studied Shakespeare knows what happens next. Commons were not in the chamber. Richard entered, and the king was still being kept safe away from Parliament. Richard walked the full length of the chamber. Quote, Straight on until he came to the king's throne, upon the covering or cushion laying his hand, and he held it upon it for a short time. End quote. He then turned to look at the room and was met by deafening silence. The Archbishop of Canterbury stopped the continuing embarrassment by quietly asking if Richard wanted to see the king. Richard, who may have been getting sick of this, snapped, quote, I know of no person in this realm the which oweth not to wait on me, rather that I of him. End quote. The lords continued to look on with surprise. On the 16th of October, Richard decided he really was done being the opposition. He had the Lord Chancellor, George Neville, one of his many nephews, Warwick's brother, present his claim to the throne of England. This was in a document that outlined that as the senior descendant from Lionel of Antwerp, Richard had a better claim to the throne than Henry. One fun fact, this document is the first time Plantagenet was used as a surname. Richard's claim was of merit in many ways. He was a descendant of Lionel's only child, Philippa. The line that he and all royals in England were descended from came through Henry I, through his daughter Matilda, so there was precedent in England for claiming descent through a woman. While Matilda was never made queen, as you'll remember, there was no reason she shouldn't have been, and her descendants sat on the throne since Henry II, nine generations, plus a few brothers and cousins succeeding each other. No legal impediment like the brand new ancient Salic law existed in England. 
With this claim, Parliament was forced to make a difficult decision. First, they needed to make sure his claim was valid. The Lords went to Henry and told him what was occurring. He asked them to just find evidence to keep him on the throne. Henry didn't even have the energy to provide them with supporting evidence. The Lords tried to have the matter heard by the King's justices. As you'll remember from Leonel of Antwerp's episode, the justices decided they were not equipped to deal with it. They handballed it to someone else. Finally, the Lords decided to send Richard a list of questions that each Lord had devised. Richard had a few days, and his responses were well thought out. The best question, in my humble opinion, was why Parliament had passed numerous acts confirming Henry's grandfather, Henry IV, and his heirs. Richard told them that Parliament had only passed one act, and that they needed to pass the act because the Lancastrian claim was illegitimate. While this may have been theoretically correct, the act needed to be passed because Bolingbroke was usurping his cousin, the rightful king. At the end of the questioning, the lords decided that they couldn't overthrow an anointed king. Instead, they declared Richard Henry's heir and created him Prince of Wales. They declared that Richard's line would continue his claim and be his heirs. It's interesting that Richard was ten years older than Henry and would likely die prior to the king. It meant, though, that his sons, Edward, then Edmund, George, and finally Richard, would have a chance to be king. Henry assented to this change. Queen Margaret did not. She was enraged by this decision, understandably. Richard was given income from the Duchy of Cornwall, probably the first moment his supposed income would actually come his way regularly and on time. Well, at least for a little while. Queen Margaret had raised forces from the Scots and was preparing to march south. She had gotten Scottish help by arranging to marry her son to one of the Dowager Queen's daughters. She wouldn't have to use her forces. Before she left Scotland, the forces she had left in England, including the Percy family, marched towards Richard's stronghold. Richard, Salisbury, and Edmund marched north to meet the Royalist forces. Edward was sent to raise troops from the Welsh marches. Richard and his forces reached the castle of Sandal on the 21st of December, 1460. He had between 5,000 and 9,000 men. Royalist forces arrived around the end of the month. There are three popular theories for what happened next. What is known is that on the 30th of December, Richard and his son Edmund left the castle and were both killed, along with many of Richard's men. Why Richard and Edmund left that castle isn't known. And these are where the theories come from. The first is the least likely. That a truce had been declared, but that Richard had been taunted so much that he left the safety of the castle to battle with those who provoked him. Richard was more considered than this, and also not a second grader. The second is that his son was outside of the walls foraging, and was seen to be under attack. In this scenario, Richard left to protect his son, and they were both killed. I think this one is more likely than the first. The final one I think is equally as likely as the second. This is that Richard was betrayed by Salisbury's older half-brothers, who had promised him soldiers and lured him out under these promises. There was one further death of note due to this battle. Salisbury survived the initial attack and was taken to Pontefract Castle, where he was dragged out and beheaded by a mob. Richard and Edmund were posthumously beheaded. 
Less than 10 weeks after his death, Richard's oldest son, Edward, would become king at only 18 years old when he won the Battle of Towton. Edward, who would become Edward IV, would face a pretender with a rather strong claim through a great deal of his reign. Edward, the Prince of Wales, Henry and Queen Margaret's only son. I'll be getting to his story very soon. But first, let's discuss Richard a little bit more. So, most important question of the series. Would Richard of York have been a better king than the king who ruled instead? I think a lot of people would have been a better king than Henry VI. A peace-loving king is great now, but this is the medieval period, and this was not the case. A king could want peace, but needed to be ready for war. Henry also had a horrible grasp on royal finances, and that can truly hurt a kingdom. Of the main characters in the last few episodes, I think, Warwick, Queen Margaret, James II of Scotland, Richard, his teenage son Edward, John Talbot, Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, probably even Charles VII, would have made better leaders in England. I think that Edmund Beaufort, Salisbury, and Cardinal Beaufort probably wouldn't have done well, but that might be picking on Salisbury a bit. He just wasn't a people person. Really, Henry wasn't a person who should have been king, and he was facing a man who had all the strengths he lacked. Matthew Lewis discussed Richard's mistakes throughout his book, and one of the obvious ones to everyone was not executing Edmund Beaufort. Richard's choice not to was just and safe. It would have been a risky overreach, but at the end of the day, it would have removed the man who separated Richard from the king and protected Richard from anything Beaufort could have thrown at him. But Richard was a better man than most. I think Richard's biggest mistake when he reached for the throne was not making sure the commons was present. His greatest support came from that house. By only having the Lord's present, he took a risk that didn't pan out. My final little thought is this. Had the shogunate system of Japan ever have been tried in England, this would have been the right person to give it a go. Had Margaret of Anjou decided to back Richard and his good governance, had Richard helped raise her son, a perfectly normal occurrence in higher levels of society, and made sure Henry was safe, given access to his books and his family, it might have worked out really well for everyone except Edmund Beaufort. But the shogunate system had not been brought to England. And there was no chance of Margaret letting that happen. I do wonder if they were just too different of people to see eye to eye. Henry was not a great king, and things did seem to run well under Richard's leadership. Had Henry's son been shown Richard's way of doing things, he may have turned into a great king. Instead of, well, you'll learn everything next week. I really hope you've enjoyed learning about Richard, third Duke of York, as much as I have. I honestly feel like his story and Robert Curthouse's are the two I really want to see movies of. Sadly, since they both lost, they miss out. I think that will be an ongoing issue with subjects in this show. Next week, I will see you for Edward of Westminster, Prince of Wales, the much-wanted son of Henry VI and Margaret of Anjou, who would fight to regain his throne from Richard's son, Edward IV. As you all know, due to the nature of the show, he won't win. But let's look at him. He's nothing like his father. I'll see you all next week. Thank you for listening to Past. I can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at PastPod. That's P-A-S-S-E-D-P-O-D. Please feel free to email me at passpod at gmail.com. I have a Patreon that can be found at patreon.com forward slash passpod.